and turn them back to, their, to his own ways. So Isaiah 42, our text will be from verses 1 to 13. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the darkness those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. So far the reading of our text. Brothers and sisters, have you ever had a job to do that was so big, so intimidating, that you just didn't know where to start? I can spare you some of the details, but this past week we had a pretty sick kid. And this sick kid, he made a mess on the floor and the rug and the couch and on myself, and I didn't know where to start. It was a huge task. Eventually, we did start, and as we started cleaning up, we found the task was bigger than it looked. There were more and more places to keep cleaning. Maybe you, too, have had a job to do or a mess to clean up that was so big you didn't know where to begin. It could be a physical mess, maybe uh, like a renovation, where you start ripping out floors and walls in your house that need to go, and you find the project just keeps on dragging on because the deeper you go, the more problems you find. Or maybe it's not a physical mess. Maybe it's a spiritual mess or an emotional mess where you're scared to get started because you realize that as soon as you actually start wading through this, you're intimidated about how much work might need to be done. Well, in this part of Isaiah, God comes to his people, Israel, and they are a mess. They're living in a world that's a mess. They're a mess physically, emotionally, and spiritually in exile for their own sins, having lost their land, lost their temple. Seemingly, it seems they might have lost their God, or at least that could have been what they feared. 
Thankfully, our God knows just where to begin, even in this mess. Drawing our attention away from this huge uh, issue that, this people, that these people are facing in this world. Uh, he tells us in Isaiah 42, for the first time, to stop looking around at the world around him, stop beholding the idols as we heard about last week in Isaiah 41. Instead, he says, stop and behold, that is, look to my servant. And we'll look at this in three parts. First, we'll ask, what is his mission? Secondly, we'll ask, what is he like? And then thirdly, we'll ask, what shall we do? So first of all, what is his mission? And the mission of this true and faithful servant of God is very clear. It shows up three times in the first four verses. God tells us explicitly what this servant's task will be. He says, Behold my servant. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, in verse 3, he says, A bruised reed he won't break. A wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Then again, in verse 4, He won't grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. So justice is the cause of this servant. But we really need to focus on this word. We need to get it right. Because what do you typically think of when you think of justice? I usually think of police officers. I usually think of the legal system. Uh, I think of court cases. I think of someone who does something bad, then they get an appropriate fine or some appropriate jail time. But that's not quite the sense of justice in the Bible. That's a part of it, a small part of it. But that's actually much too small for what the servant of the Lord's mission will be. Often in Scripture, when it's talking about justice, the, uh, the idea, the, the sense of justice is actually much bigger, much more robust. This servant isn't just coming to punish people who had done things wrong. To understand justice in the Bible, it might be helpful to know what the opposite is. The opposite of biblical justice, one commentator says, the opposite is chaos. The opposite is disorder. And so here in this passage, we see the Israelites, God's people, their life is in chaos. Their houses have been destroyed, their temple destroyed, brought into exile. Their lives are a mess spiritually, physically, emotionally. And yet God's servant is going to step in and bring justice. He's going to bring order to their lives once again. He's going to step into a world where we heard last week. Uh, it's a world where people's hearts are full of idols. They're full of fears. And so they've created things. They, they've propped them up and nailed them down so they don't fall over. Things that can be made into gods and trusted and worshipped. And yet it's not just the Israelites whose lives are in chaos. It's the world. The world is a place full of evil things happening and justice not being done. The wicked today as well, but back then, the wicked would often go free. They would seem to prosper more than anyone else, often at the expense of others. Those who were seemingly innocent, they would be harmed and oppressed. The strong would get power and they wouldn't use it to build up others, but they would use it to hurt and tear down and destroy others so they might be propped up. Again, in this context, we can see, we can consider the great empires in the world at the time of this writing. The Assyrians, the Assyrians, they got some great technology and some power and some wealth. And what did they do with it? Did they use it to bless others, to bring them up? No, they used their new technology and wealth and strength to crush others 
and bring them down. If the Assyrians smelled some sort of a weakness, they would come and destroy them so their empire could get bigger and stronger and more powerful. The same was true with the Babylonians and then the Persians after them. An Assyrian king actually said that they were going to use their power to go out into the world and they would break hostile nations and kings like reeds. Likewise today, when a nation or a business or a, a sinful man gets some new technology or power or resources, how long usually before they use this not to bless and to help? But they used to leverage it. They leverage it for their own power, for their own benefit, often at the expense of others. They use it to hurt and oppress and destroy for their own gain. And this isn't just the state of the sinful world. Isaiah makes it very clear. This is the state with God's own sinful people as well. That's why we read the end of Isaiah 42. God in our text, he talks about people being utterly blind and deaf, and deaf to the needs of the oppressed. And then at the end of Isaiah chapter 42, he says, Hey Israel, I'm not just talking about the world. First and foremost, I'm talking about you. He says in the end of Isaiah 42 at verse 18, if you still have it open. He says, Hear you deaf. And look you blind that you may see. And who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger I sent? It was Israel, the people who were supposed to know better. They weren't supposed to live like this. They were supposed to know that blessings didn't come by chance. They didn't have to leverage them for their own good. They were supposed to know blessings came from the Lord. They were supposed to leverage them for other people's good. For other people's blessings. And count on the Lord to care for them. The Israelites were loaded with blessings, and yet they failed spectacularly with them. They need the true servant of our text to come and redeem them, as much if not more than others. You can look at Israel's history. So God blessed his people with land and with food and with resources. And what did they do? We can read time and time again, God's people, especially the leaders who are given the most, they're called out for harming the, the others for not caring for widows or for orphans or the oppressed but rather looking out for themselves making themselves rich and comfortable God sent kings and judges and priests with authority this is why we have the historical books and these kings and judges and priests they were supposed to restore order and true justice not just punishing the guilty but giving grace to those who needed it and you can read all about the kings in the Old Testament. Rather than promoting order and the worship of God, of giving blessings to others, often the kings themselves promoted the worship of idols. They themselves lost God's law. They themselves uh, uh, took care of themselves at the expense of their people, making themselves rich and powerful. Likewise, you can read about the priests. The priests had a wonderful gift, a wonderful blessing. It was their job to know God's law and to teach others. And yet we read of priests too, being some of the most corrupt of the people. We can read of priests getting fat on the sacrifices the people were supposed to bringing, be bringing to God. They didn't use their position to care for the people. They didn't use their position to worship and honor God. They used their position to indulge themselves. 
This wasn't just true in the Old Testament either. Jesus comes and says to the religious leaders of his day, to the Pharisees, entrusted with a great position, he says to them in Matthew chapter 15, that they, the guides of the people, are blind. Jesus looks at the poor and the weak and the oppressed of the people, people who desperately need a good God, people who desperately need a Savior, people who desperately need good leaders to send them there. Jesus looks at the poor and weak and oppressed sinners. And what does he say the Pharisees are doing to them? He says that the weak and wounded are going around and the Pharisees are tying up heavier burdens on their shoulders. The leaders of the people meant to point the people to God for relief from their sin and guilt and anxiety. They were making the people suffering worse. And Jesus sees this as a great injustice. And brothers and sisters, we need to realize this isn't just a problem back then. It's a problem today, too. Of course, our society is still unjust. We can see that. It's disordered. It's chaotic. Not just our nation, but we need to realize even our own families and our own hearts. We need to look around and see that churches, too, churches, too, haven't they? They have oppressed people. They have hurt people. And we see it, when we see this, it should break our hearts. People who are entrusted, they're supposed to be God's representatives on this earth. And what do they show forth? We are supposed to be God's representatives on this earth. And so often, what do we show? How do we use our gifts and our blessings? This is the situation that God is speaking into here. So often we don't rightly order our lives under God, worshiping him and praising him, taking his blessings and using them to bless others, pointing others back to him. So God's servant that is promised in this passage, he's different than you and me and the Israelites of the past. He is a man on a mission. He's coming as a new king, as a new leader, a new priest, a new prophet. He's coming to bring true justice, to bring order to the chaos of our lives to restructure society, to knock down the proud and lift up the humble. And we read in verse 13, I love the imagery of our text. Look at verse 13 with me again. That this great king, he is coming like a warrior. We read there, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. And so against the injustice in the world, we get a picture of the Lord going out like a great warrior into battle. We see he's hyping himself up. It seems like he's giving himself sort of a pep talk, interestingly. Going out with a great war cry because he knows his cause is right and because he knows his victory is assured. We can see this servant is going to bring justice, not just to Israel, but we read in verse 2, he's going to bring justice a well-ordered life under God to the nations. We need to realize what a tremendous job this is before this king. Imagine what it would take to bring this perfect sense of justice, not just punishing the wicked, but also lifting up the poor and oppressed, bringing them back to our God. Imagine what an effort that would be just in our city of Chilliwack, or just in our church, or just in our families, to order our homes perfectly. But that this servant is coming to establish justice on all the earth. 
And yet his victory is assured. Verse 4 says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Again, that means the very ends of the earth and everyone in between. The coastlands we read await his law, his rule, and his instruction. So brothers and sisters, we've seen what is this servant's mission. And now let's turn to our second point. What is this servant like? As we've heard, he's coming, first of all, as a great king, a great warrior, pepping himself up, seemingly, for some sort of an attack. More than that, though, our text tells us in verse 5 that he's equipped and he's sent by, he is backed by God himself. Verse 5 says, The Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, And so this warrior, this servant, this king who is coming, he will be far more powerful of a king or a ruler than all the other nations, than Assyria or Babylon or Persia, that the Lord has allowed to turn other nations and rulers into dust. And yet, brothers and sisters, as we think of the rulers of Assyria and how they used their power, their absolute power, it seemed, to dominate and crush and destroy for their own benefit, we turn back to this passage and see to our great joy the servant of the Lord is unlike any other king or ruler we have ever seen before. We read in verse 2 this great warrior who's coming forward, this great king. This one will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. That means, and the New Testament explains it this way, that he's not going to try and gain huge popularity or make a name for himself or elevate himself over the people. Instead, verse 3 tells us this great warrior king, the Lord is coming to establish justice in this world, justice in his uh, church. We read in verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Brothers and sisters, that is an awesome ruler. The ruler that people like you and me desperately need. I once heard a story a number of months ago about C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was writing some letters back and forth to a young girl about 11 or 12 years old. And this great man, C.S. Lewis, he's been called an intellectual giant of the 20th century. He was an incredible writer and a professor with positions at Oxford and Cambridge. And yet, this great man who we could look up to, he took the time to respond to this young girl's letter complaining about how the school newspaper, how they had totally messed up her short story that she had submitted to them. And C.S. Lewis took the time to respond. He sympathized with her and cared for her. And that's amazing, isn't it? Because we can know that C.S. Lewis was great uh, for his achievements, but doesn't it, brothers and sisters, makes C.S. Lewis actually far greater when we know that he was also humble and he was kind, that he was willing to humble himself to writing for this little girl. And this story is even more amazing because the young girl he was writing with found out later that apparently C.S. Lewis apparently always really disliked writing letters, but he wrote with her anyway. And he had wrote the last letter to her when he was terribly ill, within weeks of his death. C.S. Lewis, on his deathbed, was taking the time to write letters to this little girl 
who was concerned that her short story was printed wrong. Doesn't that elevate C.S. Lewis in your mind? Make this great man so much greater. Well then, brothers and sisters, see how that's just a tiny little picture of our warrior savior in this text. Our warrior savior who has the power of the God who stretched out the heavens and the earth. And what does he come down to do? How does he come down to you and me? He comes down and sees a bruised reed, literally a crushed reed. That's supposed to indicate the Israelites back then, but people like you and me, people who are crushed by sin and Satan, by our own guilt and oppression. This great warrior king, he sees a crushed reed, and he will not break it. Jesus, this great warrior and king, all commentators agree what it, it means when he says that he won't break it. What it really means is that he comes and he picks up this broken, this crushed reed, and he supports it, and he heals it, and brings it back to life. Jesus Christ, he goes to a smoldering wick, and we need to realize, back then, these, these lights, these candles, the only point was to give light, right? And when the wick was done, the wick was done. If it starts smoldering, you snuff it, you throw out the wick, and you get a new one. That's the only thing to do. It failed in its only purpose. Brothers and sisters, Israel, it seemed, had failed in their only purpose, showing God's holiness and justice to the, nature, the nations. And brothers and sisters, it seems like we have failed in our only purpose, showing God's holiness and justice and love and compassion to the nations. And yet, this servant of the Lord, this warrior, Jesus Christ, he comes to smoldering wicks like us, and he doesn't snuff them out. He doesn't replace them. Instead, he cups his hands around them to defend them. He blows some air on them. He brings them back to a roaring fire so they can be a light once again. This is how this great king acts towards his crushed people, the Israelites in exile, but also people like you and me, so often crushed under the effects of sin in this world, so often barely smoldering as a light. This king we see is coming not to break us, unlike any other king of the time, but he's coming to heal not to snuff us out, but to fan us back into flame. And brothers and sisters, what's even more remarkable is to think for a second, how was it that Jesus Christ would come to heal broken reeds like us, not to break us, but to heal us? How would he come not to snuff us out, but to fan us back into flame? We can see a little bit, just a little bit, of the nature of this servant's task in this first song of his, as it's called. We already get some ominous hints of what this warrior is going to do. We read together in verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. And think about that for a moment. Because we're picturing this great warrior king. And that is a very strange phrase there in verse 2, isn't it? Why would this great warrior king ever feel the urge and need to repress it, to cry out in the streets. The word there in the Hebrew is specifically word, the word for a cry of distress, a cry for help. The text says in verse 1, the Lord will uphold him. Well, why would such a great leader need to be propped and held up? Eric Alexander, a great preacher, he explains 
that we have a direct fulfillment of this prophecy. Right at the beginning, can you guys still hear me? Yeah, is it working okay? No? Better? No. No? Should I just use the microphone? Pardon? All right. Should be good for my head? Excellent. There we go. All right. So if you have the text open with me, I'll look at the very first verse of chapter 42. And there we can read. The Lord is saying, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And when we read those words, especially if you know your Bible quite well, I hope it makes you think right away to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, he went into the Jordan River and he was baptized. And do you remember what happened? God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Words that echo this very prophecy. My servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Then uh, the Lord says in this text that he will put his spirit upon his servant Well, when did God put his spirit upon his servant, Jesus? Right after his baptism. The spirit came down as a dove. And yet our text says ominously, as I said, that the Lord will uphold him. His mission involves him needing to be held up. And again, we can see this right after Jesus Christ's baptism, when he takes up his task. Immediately we read in the Gospels, he was driven into the wilderness. He was hungry and thirsty for 40 days as he battled with the devil and temptation. And at the end, heaven opened up and angels came down and ministered to them. You can see the fulfillment here. Heaven was holding him up because he came to do a tremendous task. He came to do battle with sin and Satan with the the world, with our own guilt. This wasn't the first, or this wasn't the last time this prophecy was fulfilled. Think to the end of Jesus' ministry. Again, on the night when Jesus Christ was betrayed, this unimaginably great warrior king, he became sorrowful unto death. And again, we read in the Gospels, 
he would need to be held up. Again, angels came down and ministered to him. They upheld him because his task of taking the wrath of God against our sins was so heavy and so great, even for this great warrior king. Jesus came to the crushed in spirit, and he came to have his spirit crushed, because that is how he could set you and me free. As we read in Mark 15, verse 19, after his farce of a trial, Jesus' tormentors were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. For your sake and mine, this great warrior king, he was crushed. For your sake and mine, his perfect life was snuffed out because that was the way to pay for our sins, to remove our guilt, to bring us back to God and once again, reorder our lives in the way they were created to be. To bring order to the chaos of our lives plagued with sin and misery and guilt. To bring true justice to our lives and to our hearts. To bring us peace with God once again. How we know what he says here is true, that he longs for justice. We can see it in Jesus Christ. That he longs to bring his sinful people into a right relationship with him with each other, and with our great God. This is how much he longs for it, that he has promised this warrior king, his own son. And he came to accomplish it in his own zeal, and he will, and he did. And we read he will restore the glory to God, the only place glory belongs. And well, he did it for the Israelites back then, and for you and me today. We can come to this great Savior, and we can still lean on this promise. When we feel like we have been crushed in our spirits, when we feel like a bruised reed, we can come to Jesus Christ, this great warrior king, and we can trust with certainty a bruised reed he will never break. He would rather be broken himself. When we feel like a faintly smoldering wick, we can come to him and trust he will never snuff us out. He would rather be snuffed out himself. What a great Savior the Lord has promised for weak and sinful people like the Israelites, for weak and sinful people like you and me. And so our third and final point is how should we respond to this great servant? Well, the Lord makes it very clear, beginning in verse 10. He says, sing to the Lord a new song. You can sing with joy and adoration and wonder at such a marvelous Savior such a powerful Savior, such a kind Savior. We can worship him and praise him and bow down before him, and I hope you see the wonder and the beauty of this. We said the mission of the Lord, the mission of his servant, was to restore justice, to put things back in the right order. And that is exactly what he does. As he comes and is crushed for our iniquities, he removes our sin and guilt, we can go back to the Lord and worship him. We can go back to the Lord and trust him as we were created to do. We can simply fall on our knees before him and honor and glorify him once again. Brothers and sisters, the text makes it very clear it's not just you and I who are supposed to be doing this alone. The text continues after verse 10. 
His praise from the end of the earth, or sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah ring for, uh, sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them gl- give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The instruction after the Lord has come, has sent his great and faithful servant, is that we and everyone around us, everyone in all the earth, will join together in praising and worshiping and trusting the Lord once again. The text mentions those who live down by the sea. That was to the west of Israel, all the way across to the farthest point in uh, the west, over to the, the vast desert of Kedar. Those were nomads who lived in the wilderness, Israel's bitter enemies. The Lord says in response to this great Savior, let everyone from the coast to the wilderness, even the nomads living in the desert, let them all join together and bow down and worship under this king. This king who didn't come and gain his rule by crushing and destroying, but first of all, by laying down his life and reclaiming people for himself. The worship is supposed to go from the sea, from sea level, the lowest point around, up to the top of the mountains. Let everyone give glory to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is the solution to the chaos. This is where the justice, where the right ordered life comes in from. I read a wonderful quote this past week, which said something like this. I might be paraphrasing a little bit. It said, brothers and sisters, if there is anything above Jesus in your life, then your whole life is out of order. In essence, it was saying, your whole life is in chaos. As we heard last week, you're propping up created things and putting them above the creator himself. So we're called to praise the God who formed out of the earth, out of the chaos in the beginning, when it was formless and void, something that was very good and beautiful, worthy of praise. And so we're supposed to praise the God who, when our lives were a disordered mess, sent his own son, and in him he made us a new creation. He restored the right order to our lives. So let's go to him, brothers and sisters, and praise him. And we need not to uh, fear, uh, and we might need not to uh, worry that he will grow faint or he'll be discouraged with us because he has promised that he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he completes his mission of establishing true justice on all the earth. He's promised not to break us if we come to him humbly, not to snuff us out, but by his grace and mercy to heal us. He binds up the weak and brokenhearted. He works on us and repairs us in ways that we didn't even know that we were broken. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it elsewhere. He says that often when we first become Christians, then we realize, okay, our lives are going to have to change a little bit. We think of it like the renovation project of a house. And this renovation project, it can kind of hurt. And you, you understand, you think that Jesus is ripping some stuff off walls, maybe even breaking down some walls. And yet, the further you go in your walk in the Christian life, you realize Jesus Christ isn't doing a tiny renovation. He is turning your old, beaten-down, earthly tent into a great mansion. He wants you and me to reflect his glory forever. And it involves transforming every aspect of our lives. 
And so let's run to Jesus every day and ask that he will save us from our chaos, our disordered lives, and teach us to live properly just lives, that we might look like him. Let's pray that we might look like Jesus Christ, that we might be a lot bolder than we currently are. That when we see sin and oppression, we might not just sit back and think, not really my problem. Or even worse, that we might not join in in the sin. But that like Jesus Christ, we might be bold. Bold enough to call out sin and oppression. Take the side of those who need to be defended. Call people to repentance when they need to be called to repentance. And yet let's pray also that we might look like Jesus Christ. That those who are bruised, who are bruised reeds, smoldering wicks, that they might look at us and see that we are so gentle and so kind, so willing to share our blessings that the Lord has given us with others, that they will have no fear coming to us, that they will gladly come and ask us for help, because we, by God's grace, look a little bit, reflect a little bit, the holiness and the justice and the gentleness and compassion of our our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we measure ourselves, God's servants, against these servants in whom God's soul delights, we start to see that this is a big renovation project. There's a lot of work to do. And who knows where to begin? Physically and emotionally and spiritually, we are a mess. Where could we even start? We find ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites in this passage as well. And brothers and sisters, there's only one place to start. It is by running to this servant, Jesus Christ, the one who we read, and we'll stop here, the one who will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Amen.